grateful that you are here and we're here together. But I want to ask you a question that perhaps you've already considered this morning. You listened to me and I became unplugged. That was unbelievable timing. That was incredible. But, but really, why should you listen to me? I know many of you, some of you I've not yet met in person before, but a little bit about me, I'm a preacher who came to faith in Jesus at the age of six years old. From my youngest of ages, God has used Christians to shape my life. He gave me to Christian parents who loved the Lord and, and did the best they could. I saw their faith cost them financially. I saw it cost them in decisions that they made and commitments. As I aged, God brought Christian men into my life to, to sharpen me and to shape me. For me, when I was in middle school, a, a man named Doug Sheltnick, my youth pastor, he's a pastor now, and uh, a lead pastor, he shaped me in a great way. When I came into high school, God used a graduate student uh, named Blake Loy, who shaped me in a great way. He's a medical doctor now, but he would take time to, to pour into and ask questions and teach the Bible every Sunday for hours, two or three hours at a time. When Blake graduated, God brought a guy into my life named Dan Diffie, who was an atheist who came to Christ, who's now a professor of Old Testament in Colorado. When I got into college, God used a guy named Jason Allen, who's now a pastor in Kansas City, to shape my life in a great way. When I went to seminary, he used a, a variety of professors uh, to shape me and challenge me in a great way. And other men, so many that I could bring in, and men and women that God used to shape me and to teach me, Christians that know the Lord and walk with the Lord and have taught me that indeed, and show me that Jesus' way is better than every pursuit. But I want to be clear, I still sin. I'm still tempted every day. If I'm privileged to be able to serve you as a pastor for the rest of my life, I will let you down at some point, if I haven't already, some of you. One day I will die. I'm a preacher with a shelf life and with a limp. So why should you listen to me? It's because my hope is incredibly bright. My future is incredibly hope-filled. Not because of me as a preacher, but because of Jesus Christ, the preacher who didn't simply preach, but gave his life a ransom for many. Jesus Christ, who was crucified, dead and buried and rose again. It's because of Jesus that my hope is incredibly bright. And one day after my body has died in his right timing, my body will be raised again in glory and I will be with him face to face forever. And so will every person who is turned and trust in Jesus Christ. And we will spend eternity worshiping and serving him for all of our life. That's the preacher I hope you'll consider this morning. The one who died and rose again. What do you do with the resurrected preacher? I'm going to die and you can get rid of me one day. But Jesus rose again. Have you ever considered Him personally? Do you know Him? As we look at our text now this morning, I, I ask a very central question to you. Do you trust the preaching of the man who was delivered from death? Jesus. And if you have not, what do you do with your sin? See, when we look to Jesus who's holy and perfect, we can't help but realize our coming short. If we all stopped right now, don't do this, especially children that are here. But if we all stopped and looked at the sun, we would very quickly be aware of the limitations of our own human eyes. That's the glory of God. 
to look at God in all His radiance, we're immediately aware of our shortcomings. All of us. Now, we look around as humans and say, I'm not quite as broken as that person or sin-filled as that person. But the reality is we all come short compared to the glory of God. So what did Jesus say? Why is this such a day of celebration that marks all of our life? Let's look together as we look at 33 through 37 that Jesus preached that every person needs a heart transplant. The good news doesn't make sense unless you understand the honest news. There's so many medical professionals that God has entrusted to our congregations. We're grateful for, and so many of you have been in positions where you've had to deliver hard, serious news. But the hard news needs to be delivered. Jesus doesn't come short of the hard news. You see, personal discipline is a beautiful and inspiring thing in life, isn't it? I mean, we could all choose from this day on to, to go. I can go to a gym and I can begin, by my willpower, I can begin exercising. I can go and I can begin to, to choose to eat better, at least after dessert today. Not before, after dessert. Then I'll start. We can all choose to take in less screen time, to read better books. We can all choose to spend more time being present with our families when we're around them. We can choose to have wiser people in our lives. I can choose to bear down on my budget and to, and to make sure every dollar has a mission. I can save more. Can't we? We, can, we can do these things. We can do a lot, but listen, we cannot give ourselves a new heart. That's what Jesus identifies with the, the Pharisees, these religious Jewish teachers who were of the most opportune and best position possible. They had the closest access to God's word. They were appointed as leaders over God's people, Israel. And yet they missed it. You see this tree right here. We could go to Kroger and we could buy fruit and we could staple it or nail it up to the tree. But we can't change the nature of the tree. We can't change the tree. We could water it with all the water in Lake Nacogdoches and it's not going to change the tree. We could prune it with the most excellent of precision and the best discipline. We could go to school. We could do everything we could. But we cannot change the tree in its nature and from its very roots. This is what Jesus presents to the Pharisees is the problem. He calls them what in verse 34? Put this on your Easter card next year. You brood of vipers, right? Come on now. He calls them you brood of vipers. I've never been called that, but that would stink. You brood of vipers. He looks the men in the eye, face to face, leaders and teachers over the people of God. And he says, you are a brood of vipers. Why? It matters who you say Jesus is. The religious teachers that were to be pointing the way of the Messiah of God. Prophecies written down hundreds of years before Jesus would come. The promised Messiah, the King, the Anointed One of God had finally come. The snake crusher had finally come. And their teaching is trying to get people away from Jesus, the promised Messiah, not to Him. And He calls them what they are, you brood of vipers question becomes in our each of our lives who do you say jesus is and jesus gives a statement in verse 35 did you see this he says i tell you this is to the pharisees and also to all the crowd gathered i tell you on the day of judgment people will give account for every careless word they speak and i don't want to go further than that i want to ask you to consider in your mind have you spoken a careless word Perhaps you spoke a careless word as you were rushing to get to church sometime in your life. Jesus tells them every careless word. 
not just the words that the Pharisees gave where they were clearly judging Jesus as a false teacher or a worker of, of, by demonic power. He says, every careless word you speak, for by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. By their words they disregarded Jesus. You see, our hearts will be judged by a holy, good, and loving God. And perhaps we hear this and, and we think, you know what, that's okay because I'm, I'm a pretty good person. I'm okay. My words as a whole are quite good. But the preacher who rose from the dead leaves no suspense of judgment. There's no suspense for those that don't trust in him. See, Jesus is the only one that can give a new heart. He's the only one that can graft a tree in to the tree of life, the holy tree of holy roots, by faith in himself. And he takes those who are trying to steer them away from Jesus Christ. And he calls them what they are. You are poisonous snakes. You're working of the serpent. Because no one can make their heart new. Only Jesus. Now, how broken are our hearts and how Jesus plays this out as he says, we'll be judged by our words. Perhaps you look and say, I think I'm, I think I'm pretty good. Well, Jesus knows you better than you do. He knows me better than I do. And he's honest, like a good doctor. Sometimes in our lives, we can think we can clean ourselves up. This is what I hear so often in ministry, and so does our pastoral staff as well. The image, the thought that maybe we can make ourselves clean. And here's what it's like. It would be like a spring coming out and you working 20 miles down river to pick up the trash. And as you picked up the trash and put a filter out, it's clean. That's like what it is when we just simply try to clean ourselves up on the outside. We try to watch our mouth. Jesus says, no, 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 no. The problem is the heart. Your heart, the very spring of life within us that is scorned by death and sin, it is a waste plant that flows from us. We're that broken and that hopeless on our own. So, so, so do you consider the words of Jesus? The good news is that Jesus preached that every person needs a heart transplant. That doesn't matter how much money you make. That doesn't matter your background, your resume, your degrees, your success in this world. Every person is of equal standing in need of a heart transplant. And what Jesus says, what the Lord says through the Apostle Paul, in the book of Romans, as he tells them, he tells these, these, those that are coming in from, from non-Jewish backgrounds, he says, you've been grafted in by faith in Jesus. A holy root has given you new life. And that's why this day is so special for us. And we celebrate this as, as our elder Jerry Baker, uh, or Jerry Alexander. We call him Jerry the Elder, and Jerry Baker is Jerry the Younger in our meetings. But as, as Jerry was praying that, he recognized what he had said. Our need for new life. And the goodness of grace at the resurrection is for believers. It shapes every part of our life. Why? Because he's given us a new heart. He's given us new taste. A new longing of life. We see the beauty and the pursuit of Jesus is so much better. And Paul says it like this. But you stand fast through faith grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Holy. Holy. The world preaches, look deep inside of yourself and there you'll find true hope. The true you. True and real peace. 
Jesus, the preacher who rose from the dead, said, listen, I made you. I know you even better than you do. And your only hope and the only way of true life is in me. That's good news. That comes with a sting if we will not but understand the good news in verses 38 through 41 that Jesus preached that he himself is a sufficient sign for you to repent and to entrust your life to him for salvation. Jesus is a, is a sufficient sign. Jesus was a sufficient sign for the Pharisees. So a number of religious leaders, they asked Jesus to perform a sign. And this is part of what makes biblical Christianity so unique from all other religions. It's not just a book of sayings or proverbs. And I mean that with all respect. It's a historical faith, historical people, historical happenings. And Jesus Christ changed everything in a three-year ministry. Three years, that's, that's what it takes to graduate middle school for most of us. In three years, this man who did not come from any kind of political power or background, this man that had nowhere to lay his head, he would travel and he worked these miracles. And did you see what the Pharisees called them? Did you see that? He called them what? Signs. Signs. Not ends. Signs. What do signs do? They point us somewhere to someone. Why did the Pharisees recognize this? Those overseeing the, the religious teachings of, of the Jews and of Israel? They recognized that when the Messiah would come, God promised us in the Scriptures he promised his people that he would come and do these signs that aren't ends in themselves, but they authenticate, they point to who he is. And the Pharisees have seen plenty of signs to this point. As a matter of fact, if you look just a little bit earlier, Jesus had actually walked into the synagogue and healed a man who had a withered hand. Observable. Everybody knew this man. And Jesus came in on the Sabbath and healed him. Everybody saw it. Before this point in Jesus' ministry, he's already turned water to wine, demonstrating uh, sovereignty and power over the elements and over all of time. He stopped the storm on the sea with the word of his lips. These weren't private miracles. He did some of those, but these miracles were public. He healed a man that was, was born unable to walk. He would take people in the community that had leprosy and, and diseases, and he healed them. He cast out demons. And listen, he taught in a way uniquely. He taught with authority this son of the carpenter. One like no other. The Pharisees say, give us a sign. Jesus had given plenty of signs. They wanted Jesus to be a show dog. Instead, he tells these proud people, no sign will be given to you, this adulterous and idolatrous generation. Except what? Except the sign of Jonah. Hey, that's the book we've been in. The sign of Jonah is the only sign that will be given unto you. Jesus is a preacher like no other, the eternal Son of God who was sent by the Father and took on flesh. Jesus, the Son, uniquely suffered and was tempted and would lay his life down on the cross. You see, Jesus said before he ever died in Matthew 16, he told them that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, be crucified, and raise again on the third day. He called it. Now, we can call a lot of shots, right? I think most of us filled out NCAA brackets. Did you do that? Nobody's calling that shot. Now, imagine that somebody said, hey, you want to bet on it? I'm going to raise from the dead. Now, would you do that bet? 
Preachers probably shouldn't talk about betting. That's probably not a great idea on Easter. But you're probably thinking there's nothing to lose because you're not going to raise from the dead anyway. See, these people were not simpletons. They were outside more than any of us are. They know that people that die don't simply raise from the dead, let alone people that go through a faux trial and are crucified by professional executors, put in the grave. They don't just raise from the dead. Jesus called it. Jesus did signs of all of these things. And when we think of Jonah, as Jerry read for us a moment ago, in chapter 1, verse 17, what did the sailors do as we prepared for this last week on Palm Sunday? What did they do? They cast his body into the water and descended. The sailors would cast his body and the Lord would use, just as the Lord would send the fish, so too the Lord would use now the soldiers to cast Jesus' body into the tomb. The soldiers and the sailors. The Pharisees, these men that were asking for a sign, ironically would play a part in God's sovereignty from the foundation of the world, that they would play a part in fulfilling the prophecy of Jonah. They would frame him and lie and bear false witness that he would be executed. Even the soldiers, even the sailors could put Jesus' body in the ground, but nobody could raise that up again, could he? We saw in Jesus' miracle that he raised a dead girl to life. But could he raise himself to life? Who is this Jesus? You see, with all the faith of his disciples, his disciples, with all their faith, could not raise Jesus from the dead. The Pharisees, the sailors, the soldiers couldn't raise Jesus from the dead. But Jesus is the one that preaches and speaks with authority. He lays his life down and he alone takes it up again. Jesus is good news. And he tells them he is worthy. His sign of Jonah that he will do is worthy and sufficient to lead to their repentance. They're turning away from their sin and entrusting their life by faith in Jesus Christ alone. They have sufficient evidence and they'll be held sufficiently accountable. Jonah preached eight words, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, as it's recorded anyway. But Jonah himself is a sign. Jonah in his disobedience, and God in his great wisdom would allow Jonah to be swallowed by this great fish, descending into the depths. And on the third day, he would come up again. So Jonah preached this message of God's truth, his judgment, because he's holy and good and loving. He's a righteous judge. And he will hold the Ninevites accountable for their sin. But Jonah himself, the words were a message, a clear message to turn and trust in Yahweh, the true God. But Jonah himself is a sign that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel, Yahweh, the Lord, our God, he is the true God because he orchestrated. He's the God, not of a region, but he's God over all the earth. He's God over the storm and over the seas. He's a God over the fish. That Jonah and his rebellion and his wickedness would bring the fish to gobble up Jonah and bring him where he would, doing what he was called to do and vomit him up to go and to give the message he had given him to do. Jesus is indeed himself such a sign for every man and every woman sufficiently to believe, to turn and trust in Jesus. I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, 
but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. The charge I have received from my Father. Do you know the one that has authority over the keys of death? Resurrected Christ in Revelation chapter 1 would say that he has the keys of Hades and death. If you know him, Resurrection Sunday isn't simply a historical event, but it's a promise of a future hope for you, beloved. That's good news. So we see first, the bad news is the reality that all of us need a new heart. The good news is that Jesus himself is a sufficient sign for you to turn and entrust your life to him. Your sin and your identity and your future and your goals and all things. He will make you new. He will give you a new stream that flows from your heart. A new tree. A new life. A new heart. The third, when we look into verse 42, we note that Jesus is greater than any pursuit on this earth. Now, this gets interesting. And we got to be honest here in verse 42, don't we? This lady has the coolest nickname I've ever heard in my life. This sounds like something from Southern Home Living. Look at this, verse 42. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now... If you're in your Bible reading plans and you're in 1 Kings, you're like, I know exactly what he's talking about. But if you're behind, or if you just have a normal human memory, you probably don't remember this person here, this historical person. So what I want you to do, if you have your Bibles, I want you to flip over to 1 Kings chapter 10. 1 Kings chapter 10, towards the beginning of your Bibles. And in order to appreciate this, I want to give you some background that's going to come from 1 Kings chapter 3. So just remember 1 Kings chapter 3 and 1 Kings chapter 10. Because we won't understand and appreciate the queen of the south. You see, Jesus clearly believed that Jonah was a literal man who was literally cast into the water and who literally was swallowed by a great fish. And in this, he cites likewise not only the fact that he will fulfill this literally by bodily raising from the dead, but he quotes this woman, this queen of Sheba, this historical account in 1 Kings 10. But to understand 1 Kings 10, what do we got to understand? 1 Kings chapter 3. I'm so proud of you. In 1 Kings chapter 3, we hear about Solomon, this young boy king, the son of David. Now you remember, David is not perfect. Right? The, the biblical Christianity doesn't get us hope because of David or Moses, but it gives us hope because of Jesus. But Solomon, who the first son that David would have would be with Bathsheba, Uriah would be the man that was formerly she was married to. And they would have an adulterous relationship and a child would die at a young age, very tragic, but he would, God would bless him, bless them with a son named Solomon. And Solomon was young when he would take on the throne of David, king of Israel. And God comes to him and asks him, late at night, what do you desire? And I will give it to you. And Solomon, who fears the Lord, the text tells us, and is walking with God. He doesn't ask God for riches. He doesn't ask God for judgment upon his enemies of Israel. Instead, he asks God for wisdom. And 1 Kings chapter 3 tells us that God blessed him with all of those things and more. With more wealth than was imaginable. With more ability and wisdom to discern the very things of all of life. Fast forward a couple of years. The temple has been built. 
And word has spread all over about Solomon, this man that the hand of God is all over, this anointed king who sits on the throne of David. Word travels south to South Saudi Arabia or Yemen, somewhere present day in that way. And introduced, stage left, the queen of Sheba, the queen of the south. Follow with me as I read 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 1. Now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great entourage, with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. Just as Jesus is marked by the wisdom of God, the word of God made flesh, the Lord had blessed Solomon with wisdom to answer every question. And look what it says. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and the burnt offerings and that he offered in the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. She was breathless, stunned. It was like she was in the presence of the Lord. And she said to the king, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. But I did not believe the report until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told to me. Your wisdom and your prosperity, they surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants and who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord Yahweh, your God, who is delighted in you and set on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. And then she gave the king 120 talents of gold, which today is $200 million plus worth of gold, or about 15 two by fours. And in a very great quantity of spices and precious stones, never again came such an abundance of spices as these that the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. The queen of Sheba heard much about King Solomon. And it got to the point of being so interested that she left where she was. Can you imagine how much work it would take to pack up this entire crew and all her servants and all her wealth, so much of her wealth. But because she heard of a greater pursuit, that of wisdom from God, a wisdom that the world had never seen before. She counted it worthy to leave the ends of the earth to come and to see the one that was marked by the hand of God. She came and she says, all that I've ever heard, it doesn't match up. I've heard rumors and preachers, but nothing compares to truly how the Lord has blessed you with this wisdom. She's stunned. It's true. I hadn't heard the half of it. Perhaps you've heard a lot about Jesus before coming here today. Perhaps you know friends or family that know of Jesus Christ, that have turned from their sin and placed their faith and trust in Him, and you've seen Him changing their life little by little, where they're becoming different people. Beloved, you don't know the half of it. Hundreds of people sit around you now that know this Jesus is Lord. They've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. They've come into Him. He is their refuge and strength. 
No preacher with the greatest of the words could ever sufficiently surmise the greatness of King Jesus, the preacher who is resurrected from the dead. Will you come and give your life into Christ? Would you be like the Ninevites who would see even a lesser sign of the sign of Jonah and they would respond in repentance and faith and entrust in their life to the Lord? Would you be like the Queen of Sheba who would count the cost of true worth and true life and leave it all but for to be in the presence of one marked by the Lord. The greatness and the goodness of what we have because of the resurrected Christ is you don't merely get to be in the presence of the Lord forever, but the Lord gets to come and give you a new heart and life and dwell within you. That's the goodness of hope that we have in Christ on this resurrection Sunday. He is exactly who he said he is. He's who John the Baptist said he was. See, before Jesus came, God would send this prophet, John the Baptist, that would prepare the way for him. Preaching, repentance for the kingdom of God is near. He would say of Jesus, I'm unworthy to untie his sandals. He's so great. And when he would see Jesus coming as they would be baptized, softening their hearts and their conscience in preparation for meeting him, Jesus would say, or, or the, John the Baptist would say of Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's Jesus Christ. He's sufficient. He's done a sufficient work in the resurrection for you to leave it all and to trust your life to Him. Before people trust Christ, they think, I could never give up or stop doing X, Y, or Z. It's so satisfying. But if you will but trust in Christ, you will see that He gives you a new heart, a new spring, a new tree, grafted in by faith in the Son. A true promise of a hope and a future, forgiveness of sins and eternal life, adoption. That's the good news of Christ. That's why we gather to sing and sit under His Word and His praises. That's why we orient and lay down all of our goals and desires before Him and say, Lord, here I am, send me. Receive my worship. You've made me new. You've brought one that can't even look at the sun. And you've given me hearts that long to be with you. You're changing me and making me new. I love you, for you first loved me. While we were yet powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. So become like the Ninevites. Become like the Queen of the South. Come to Christ and find life abundant. Receive a new spring. Rest in the one who loves you more than you could ever imagine. That's what the cross and the empty tomb show us. Do you know Jesus? This leads me to ask you a question. Has God awakened your soul to true wisdom and eternal life in Jesus? Have you counted the cost? Do you know Him? In our next steps, I ask you, have you entrusted your life to Him? If you've not yet trusted Christ, would you do so this day, this moment? Be like the Queen of Sheba. Count to pursue true wisdom and true life. After the service, we'll have leaders, ministry leaders up here to pray with you and to encourage you and, and to help you take your next steps. But they're as simple as A, B, C, and D showing off with my alphabet at this point. A, admit to God that you're a sinner. That's the reality when we look at the Son, and the reality is that's what you realize when you look at your relationships and you look at your own heart. Perhaps you've tried for many years to clean yourself up, but you know it's not possible. And a matter of fact, your attempt to clean it up is not pleasing to God, it is an offense to God. For you cannot clean yourself up before a holy God. But if you will but be, believe in Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God who come and took on flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus fulfilled all the demands of the law and the Scriptures. 
You believe that Jesus lived a sinless life and died on the cross for your sins. You believe that he defeated death and rose again. That he ascended to heaven and he will come again one day soon. Would you then see, confess your sin to him as Savior and Lord of your life, entrusting your very identity over to him to serve him and to know him for all of your days until you would see him face to face? If that's your, where you're at, we're called as believers to make disciples. A part of making disciples is Jesus gives the command in Matthew 28, the great commission to go into all the nations, to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Baptism is part of discipleship. If you've given your life to Christ, we want to help you take a next step of following Christ in believer's baptism. We want to walk with you. D is discipleship. We want to help to teach you all the things that the Lord has taught us so that we go with him on mission in all of our life. How exciting is it to think of every one of us has such unique relationships and unique influences that God has sovereignly appointed to each of us. So we're called to be followers and learners of Jesus, disciples, making disciples for the glory of God. Amen. And so if that's you today, you can come and speak to us right after our congregational prayer. If you look in your bulletin, you'll see likewise, you can text our church number, just I believe. If you're saying, you know what, I'm interested, I want to know more, but I want to come up forward at the end of the service. You text that number, a pastor has that phone, we will follow up with you today or this week and sit down and discuss how you walk with the Lord as one who now is trusted in Christ. A second, God is so wise and powerful that he permitted uh, Jonah's rebellion. 800 years earlier, in part to foretell of the coming death and resurrection of Jesus. How wise is our God that he would appoint Jonah? We asked last week if we were thinking as, as simple humans, well, I would just go and appoint an angel like he did to Sodom and Gomorrah and send an angel. Well, God in his sovereignty and his wisdom, he would choose Jonah. And he would use even in Jonah's rebellion and casting overboard from that storm. He would use it to foreshadow the coming of Jesus Christ. The sovereign wisdom of God is so great. And here's the deal. In Jesus Christ, we have the wisdom of God. Worth every pursuit known to man ever unto life. So would you commit this day to say, Lord, I want to grow in your wisdom. Commit to walk through the book of Jonah with us. We'll be in the book of Jonah for the rest of this month. Walk through this book with us and ask God to give you courage to speak of his wisdom with others. That's a challenge. But you know what? I've never been afraid to talk about the wisdom of my wife with someone else. Because I love her and I know she's good. I know she's wise. And so how much more than that God would give us courage and boldness to speak not simply of the wisdom of a human being marked by sin, but the one who became sin for us on the cross. Can you imagine, as you look around for a moment, imagine if, as the Holy Spirit who indwells us as believers, as he leads us this week with our unique conversations and places we're going to go and Jonah experiences we're going to have, hopefully not literally. But to think, as we're longing to be obedient with the wisdom of God to speak of Jesus, how exciting is that? How good is our God? And trust your sin and your life to him today. He's worthy. In Christ alone we stand. Would you stand with me as we sing now, church family?